Hello out there, thinkers, linkers, and mappers. We are very happy to host a series of conversations around the topic of tools for thinking. Our longer term goal is to spark a diverse, connected, shared memory that will help us make important decisions together. Our near term goal with these podcasts is to interest startups in being part of Betaworks' upcoming Accelerator Think Camp. Uh, Betaworks is a New York City uh, based incubator and accelerator. They've run seven camps before on topics from bots to synthetic media and voice interfaces, always sort of leading edge stuff. You can find out more about ThinkCamp in this domain by going to betaworks.com slash camp, all lowercase. I'm Jerry Mikulski, your interlocutor and obsessive mind mapper. Uh, our topic today is space, pixels, and cognition. Uh, my guests are Yilu Shen Burke and John Underkoffler. Uh, if you've watched Minority Report, you've seen John's work. Uh, he invented the interface that Tom Cruise uses to find uh, pre-crime and uh, didn't just do sort of fancy UI design, actually invented a usable and useful uh, uh, gesture language that works called GSpace. Uh, and then Yilu has a, soft, a software startup called uh, SoftSpace and uh, is working in AR, VR, XR sort of domains to try to figure out how data and experiences fit in that space. So um, John, what, how did your life change at the Minority Report marker? Because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that, that, that the popularity of the movie and that the simple attractiveness of the interface that you helped create uh, must have done something pretty huge for you. It without question. And, you know, it's it's easy to feel petulant and say, oh, I'm sick of Minority Report, but it's been a perpetual gift. And so, in fact, I'm I'm really grateful. The truth, too, is that when you work on a film and I've I've worked on quite a few now, even though I'm not really a, a, a filmmaker principally, and I guess I'm a designer and a technologist, but is that you don't know day to day as you're working on it during pre-production, production, post-production, whether it's going to turn out, whether it's going to be any good. I mean, you you can be on set and just watch unbelievably brilliant actors doing incredible things, or watch the monitors and see a you know world class cinematographer capturing amazing images, and the thing that comes out is still sort of a dull wad of damp dryer lint, uh, and and conversely. So I, I was really excited when Minority Report, you know, was a sort of sharp. And uh, and even political uh, and and beautiful and elusive as it was, and uh, right away I knew that that all the time that I'd spent designing that UI and training the actors because it was not just Tom Cruise it was also Neil McDonough and Colin Farrell and there's interesting stories there um, had had really paid off um, and you know people still talk about Minority Report which is amazing to me and so there's. There's something about the process that we undertook that was really dedicated to a, an actual verisimilitude, not a sort of, you know, cinema level thing, which is entirely uh, the consequence of the production designer, the great Alex McDowell's world building approach there. So it, it Minority Report led directly to a whole bunch of things, including my um, eventually long-toothed startup, uh, Oblong Industries. And frankly, it was in, in, in describing what we were trying to do with Oblong, it literally saved dozens or hundreds of hours out of my life and my colleagues' lives, because trying to describe an alternate UI, and here we're getting right into the meat of the thing, is 
ridiculously difficult. People are so kind of blinded into the increasingly incapable, uncapable UIs that we're all saddled with today that saying, no, 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 this is the thing where you use your hands and there's screens all around you. It's not just one little rectangle. It sort of gives rise to cartoon question marks floating above people's heads. But instead we were just able to say, have you seen Minority Report? And most people had and bang, that, that was it. The weird thing is that even though we and the writer and the, and the director and everyone involved in the film knew that we were making this deliberately kind of gray, ambiguous, obviously noir inflected and sort of political, you know, query, like, is it okay to give up all of your, all of your, your, your privacy uh, in exchange for convenience, in exchange for commerce and the rest of it? The tech world didn't take it that way. The tech world has used Minority Report as a shopping list, basically, of startup ideas. And there are literally hundreds of startups like, oh, what if we did predictive policing and just arrested people based on an algorithm, right? That's, all over the place. What if we installed cameras everywhere? What if we made robots that go try to find perpetrators? You know, like so. And we're like, no, no, no. That was supposed to. The point was that was a bad idea. But anyway, there you are. The power of cinema. That's super interesting. I hadn't quite thought about it that way. But it's sort of like occasionally there are object lessons that totally yeah. miss their mark. Somebody says something yeah. or does something that is misinterpreted entirely, or or where the message is just missed. Yeah. Right. Indeed. Um, and, and as we look at Mark Zuckerberg's renaming of Facebook to meta and his pitch for the metaverse, and uh, I've critiqued this a little bit online, it's like uh, that what he showed was, would have been embarrassing for Second Life to show a decade ago uh, or 15 years ago. It's like, hmm, intriguing. Like, have we made no forward progress on this? And I guess he's forgotten as well that the metaverse is actually the medium, the vector by which everyone is infected with this horrible kind of cognitive virus in the book, right? Oh, like, never mind the negative thing or snow crash, yeah. right? Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. Yilu, can you just tell us a little bit, narrate for us, how did you get to SoftSpace? What, like, what, was, what was your path to, to the startup? Sure, thanks for that intro, Jerry. And uh, thanks for that very insightful behind the scenes um, snapshot, John, of, of what it was like to work on Minority Report, which I did also rewatch recently and thought there's a lot more in here than just the floating UI. Like there's a lot in there. <laughs> so, you know, the self-driving cars, the um, genetically modified plants that like, you know, can poison you, uh, amazing stuff. Um, the backstory to SoftSpace is that I was working in this design and art studio here in Berlin. Uh, as a research resident. Um, this was in 2016 when the Oculus DK2 had just kind of come out, or that was sort of the state of the art in terms of VR hardware. And the studio had bought this headset to try to see the potential of this, you know, exciting new technology, either as a medium for artworks or as a tool uh, for the production of other non-digital artworks. And when they bought it, they realized, oh, there's nothing, like you can't, you can't download an app and just try it out. There's nothing mm -hmm. on this thing. So they somehow um, found me. Um, you know, I was willing to take a break from architecture school all the time to come for a year and just play with this device. Um, I've been wanting to get my hands on one for a while. I had sort of been teaching myself coding uh, throughout architecture school, and this was a good, a good opportunity to get paid to learn to code, although they now they know this, I guess, but they didn't know this at the time. Um, it was a really 
fantastic year. Um, I had, you know, like one slow week or, or once every two weeks sort of prototype cycle. I would build something, show it around, people had a good time. And at some point, the idea started occurring to me that um, a lot of these prototypes we were building where we were showing uh, 3D models of physical artworks um, and people were able to look at them, or we were showing um, just photographs, uh, reference images, reference materials um, in, in a virtual space. A lot of these experiments were starting to hint at the possibility of uh, a new way of working that actually grew a lot from the practices and the advantages of the physical studio that we had around us. Uh, it's this old beer brewery in the middle of Berlin. And sweet, um, sounds like a great space. It's it's incredible. It's it's absolutely incredible workspace. Um, and and so much of the success of the studio comes from its uh, from its it having this physical environment where different teams could materialize their thoughts. They could externalize their ideas. Passers-by would be able to sort of stop and say, "Oh, look, this reminds me of." something I'm working on downstairs, like, why don't you come to the welding, you know, shop and we can sketch out something or try this that idea. And, um, and I, this idea just, just sort of started uh, infecting my mind, like a mind virus. And I would wake up at, in the middle of the night thinking, oh, you know, I, I really, like, why doesn't this exist? I really want to build this. Um, and in parallel, there was a moment where the main artist of the studio, um, he has a, a secondary studio in Copenhagen. He was flying between Berlin and Copenhagen a lot. And at one point he came in to a meeting, sort of like really tired from the airport and kind of joked like, oh, if only we could just, you know, put on these goggles and just have this meeting while I was still in Copenhagen. And then it really clicked for me like, okay, this is, this is something that's worth pursuing. This is something that's worth at least, you know, exploring. And it was an art studio, so it wasn't the right context to really pursue what ultimately is a, a software product. Um, and so I realized, okay, I have to take this into a different context, uh, which I guess is, you know, um, Silicon Valley and uh, the tech startup world. Um, <laughs> and Berlin, and, uh, Berlin yeah, has a hot startup scene and a hot art scene. So you're kind of situated in a really good place there. It's been a very, I feel very fortuitous to have had this spark, you know, in a place where there were people um, around to, to pick up on it. Although I do have to say that at the end of the day, from my, from my limited experience of such things, there still is no place like San Francisco when it comes to really building things at the edge of what's possible. That's its own conversation, I think. We could have a, a riff on that as well. Yeah, Silicon Valley has this very strange and interesting effect on everything. And, and uh, I want to bring us back sort of to this idea of alternate user interfaces and, and also um, not limit our conversation to the present or to past experiments or, to, or even to code being written today, but just kind of let us wander a little bit into what we think is possible and how it might work, what the limitations might be, but what the opportunities might be. Um, and I want to add to the mix something that's become really important for me, which is uh, memory or permanence or persistence, I call it. And one, one of my problems with cyberspace right now with the web, with the intertubes, with whichever one you want to call it, is that um, it's all uh, flow and not, not very much stock. We're drowning in the info torrent. Every year somebody invents some damned new social media thing like it was Snapchat, then it was TikTok, and who knows what you know? Who knows what the next year is going to give us? But but I, I every day I have to do my sweep. It's like I I'm on a bunch of different media, and I have to go figure out what somebody said on each one. And 
if somebody says something memorable or useful, or in fact, something I need to reply to, like must reply to, I have to now remember which damned medium was it in. And it's all lost in this in this all siloed up kind of my experience of, of cyberspace, right? And it feels like that and so many other things are big opportunities to change how this works and how we think about it. Um, so uh, John, I don't, where has your mind gone since Minority Report and sort of that marker in the sense of, uh, and, and I love that your experience there was so deep in the sense of, mm. you know, you, you can stand and, and deliver a talk while giving the interface and showing what it does and how it actually works. They're, they're just your primitives that you created and, and internalized. Um, and so by doing that practically, I think you hit a bunch of, you know, barriers and overcame them and then hit some walls that you knew you couldn't overcome because that's where the limits of that were. What else, what else have you sort of started thinking in terms of where this, where these, uh, types of augmented or alternate interfaces could go? I think any discussion like this can either proceed by nominating a bunch of deficits <laughs> and holes and absences, or just skip that and, and talk about the, the, the stuff that would fill them in, uh, or you can kind of do both. But it, for me, there's, I think there's, there's a couple of pinnacles that you can kind of see, even from our kind of squashed to the ground position where we are right now. Uh, one, and maybe this is sort of the, the catch-all, is just generic agency and efficacy. Like, that should be the metric by which we uh, assess a UI. And e even that sentence already, like, I don't know how far back I'm gonna push myself here. Like this, we have to go back a step to say, we don't talk about UI. God bless us all here and, and you, especially Jerry, for like, for creating a, you know, a little 90 minute space-time window where we can talk about it. But by and large, it's not a, it, it, it's not a, a fit topic. Right, mm -hmm. like you don't talk like about it. UI is UI is Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno either, but right. uh, yeah. But a few of us do, and uh, so if we're going to talk about it, then the first thing we have to ask is, how much agency does it afford you? How much efficacy? Like how what you know what does it let you do that you couldn't do by yourself? And I think it's not it's not even particularly cynical to say that the last fifteen years of of concerted and well-funded development has all kind of pushed toward a narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller efficacy set of tools and set of ways of thinking about what digital stuff even is. Like what is the substance of the machine and therefore what is the substance of our minds? Uh, conversely, my view has always been that the that the machine, the computer systems that we build on it should be like an exoskeleton for for minds. Uh, like Sigourney Weaver, build. like Sigourney Weaver yeah. in the Mac. Yes, but exactly, exactly. Except so, software. Forget and xenomorph is ignorance. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, uh, I guess forget bicycle for the mind because that's a metaphor that never quite worked for me. But an exoskeleton, something that lets you extend your reach in a benevolent, not xenomorph smacking way necessarily, but you know, uh, something that lets you extend your reach, something that lets you transduce your ideas and your human will into a larger pool of ideas, and in some cases into physical reality. So that's the efficacy piece. Two is 
collaboration, right? The, um, the personal computer that begat all this, and we haven't really gone past it, we just carry it around with us now, is arguably too personal. It is in fact entirely solipsistic. Uh, both by dint of the way the operating system works. I mean, the stuff like you, the indictment can start at the UI, but it gets all the way down to the silicon, right? Because you, the, the UI is the part of the computational world that you get to see and touch and feel and experience, uh, and it's supported by and therefore defines and inflects what's at the OS level. Uh, and so all of these, all of these machines, all of these systems were defined solely to support the activities and the thinking and the work of an individual person at a time. And that's so unhuman. Uh, I, I, I really want to to get back to Ilyu's early days in architecture because I think that I, I mean I I don't know, but I have to think that that all of the great stuff that's kind of pouring into soft space and the, the sequence of prototypes starts with starts with space. I mean, it is soft space after all. So uh, you know, physical architecture is is inherently collaborative unless it's an isolation tank uh, or a coffin. I'm just thinking about that for the first time, but otherwise, like. We build architecture for people to come together in and to accomplish certain tasks. We're eating together, we're watching a talk, we're sitting around a table debating, um, we're throwing cream pies at each other in the war room uh, to call back to something that happened before the recording started and so forth, right? Like the architecture kind of encapsulates and reflects the activity. And we haven't built UIs and operating systems in that mode. So from my point of view, all, all systems, all operating systems, all UIs, uh, and all application level systems should be inherently collaborative. And that can't happen unless the OS and the, the basic UI already has that idea. Like this, you know, this sort of video multi-communication thing, it, it astonishes me that this is a business. Like this should be just like given. what a computer does bingo like every computer just does this because of course you want to do but no you know and i'm happy for eric and he's got a you know i don't know what a hundred billion dollar market cap company whatever but but that's that's sort of uh that's sort of an indictment so efficacy collaboration and then a third one that i'm going to nominate is exhilaration it seems to me that those of us who were, you know, who saw the stuff climb out of the primordial slime in the late 70s and early 80s can remember clearly the excitement that surrounded the idea of technology. And, you know, we can say that it was overly utopian, uh, or we could say that what we've got today is a little bit overly dystopian. But something about how, you know, the, the giant Katamari wheel has rolled along and picked oh. up more and more and more. Um, it's not picking up everything. Like it's picking up stuff in a single axis and the exhilaration is gone. I mean, you know, Google or Meta or whoever can, or Apple can have their yearly conference or a big announcement and try to make something pretty dull, ultimately something like in the grand scheme, pretty dull as exciting as they possibly can with the aid of expensive agencies. But, you know, it's like 
we're just in one corner of Toledo and there's all of the continent and all of the world still out there with all of its stuff and we're not allowed to talk about it, right? Like, so the excitement, the, the exhilaration still exists. It's just not being implemented. And I think that um, just, just as I would propose to measure a UI by its degree of uh, efficacy, I would also propose to measure it by its degree of inherent exhilaration and mm -hmm. and the 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 kind of uh, precursors for that the the analogs are the things that we do as humans that are you know sort of cognitive and physical at the same time so playing an instrument or scuba diving or dancing like all of all of that all of that stuff that's mind and body at the same time that's what exhilaration feels like and i think all of us on this call know that a digital system can do that also we've we've seen it right yeah. we've felt it we've experienced it we just don't build like that anymore exactly um you before going to you i just want to put i want to make explicit something that is a a, a force or an energy around this topic that's almost like background radiation from the big bang for us and it's it sort of starts with engelbart's 1968 mother of all demos in which his whole thing is about collective intelligence the whole thing is about collaboration everything about it isn't just about window overlapping windows and mice they invent the mouse for god's sake um but it's all that and then a bunch of people interpret that vision and turn it into single player single user personal productivity systems jobs and gates both geniuses in different ways had to be blackmailed bribed and threatened into multi-user anything they, they, they were like, no, 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 this is this is a bicycle for one mind, or mm -hmm. this, this is like a personal productivity tool. And yet, and there's a bunch of people grousing, I think, very appropriately that that so much was offered to us by Engelbart's vision that still has not been really tapped, we have not gotten in there. And then, and then at some point, um, we wasted a whole bunch of pixels, and we, we actually turned this into the WIMP interface, the Windows uh, mouse pointer, etc, forget, forgetting exactly what the, what WIMP stood for. Um, but um, but that is now the tractor beam that draws everything back into it. So the desktop metaphor is like this this black hole with an event horizon that eats startups. And I was a big fan of Prezi. I used Prezi as my go-to storytelling tool for tool for a long time. And um, Prezi redid itself twice, once to look more like PowerPoint, but I could still do with the original magic with the zebra menus. And then twice more recently, they just lobotomized themselves. They just killed off the endless whiteboard that I could tell stories in. And I, and I now have no tool to go tell endless stories in. I, I'm, I'm searching, trying to figure out why did they do that? Well, they did that because there's this uphill climb to get anybody to use anything that doesn't look like office. Right. And so, and so, this is a tractor beam that pulls all startups toward it. And it's the brave and unusual startup that can ignore that and go someplace else. And I think XR, VR, AR is an attempt to leap to some new place. And maybe if we stand in some new place, and then I see augment, I, augmented reality things with desktop metaphor sprinkled in and my heart aches, my heart bleeds. Um, so you, how, do you, how do you cope with being a startup on that event horizon in this environment yeah. with with do you detect the force i just described and then how do you either fight it or ignore it and just leap to some new place 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're not imagining it. <laughs> I think my, my biggest shield against it might just be my ignorance. I literally don't know how to write uh, JavaScript. I only know Unity C Sharp. So I, I'm incapable of taking that that um, that direct line into the event horizon uh, where I just, you know, make make a really fast and dirty uh, and functional 2D UI. I have to invent some, you know, convoluted 3D way of doing it. Um, but just uh, there's so many so many really, really, uh, really juicy points here. And um, to, I, so I've been thinking a lot recently, mostly because I have to put this down in writing for a couple of different uh, things I'm working on. But um, I've been thinking a lot recently about what the actual, what the concrete benefits are of having an immersive 3D uh, interface. You know, like I, I get this question a lot, uh, especially when I share my work on Twitter and what you see inevitably of what I'm building is just a 2D representation of it, you know, uh, a, a, through, a through the lens view, uh, something in a video. And I get this question a lot from, from the internet and from other people, uh, not on the internet like what is this really adding beyond maybe the novelty of of, a, of, of the third dimension and I, I i i'm i think of it the answer to this in, in in terms of three separate pillars so the first has a lot to do with jerry what you mentioned uh, early early on um memory and persistence um and you know, there is now this, um, finally, finally, there is, it has been established that uh, a spatial canvas can be a legitimate paradigm for building a serious software tool, right? It took a really long time for that to happen. And and I know we, in our, in our other call, we had sort of mixed feelings about the Figma acquisition, but I do think that Figma, at least for people in my position who are trying to build something that, um, is legible to you know capital and, and gatekeepers that is also trying to push the, the the envelope something like the figma acquisition just takes it it cuts it shaves like 15 to 30 minutes off of every conversation you know people ask like can ui innovation actually be worth all the headache won't someone else just steal it from you won't adobe just steal it from you actually no it can like you can make this work within the you know our existing flawed uh, system of allocating capital and, and, and funding innovation and all that. Um, and so just to say that um, we finally recognize now that something that you know every human being knows all the time, except when they're using a, you know their computer, which is um, spatiality matters. It really, you know, it, the way that our brains and bodies have evolved over millions of years, uh, literally, if you could not remember where like a hundred different things were, in your environment um, at different scales. And you know that some of the things are moving, some things are seasonally, you know, if you if you couldn't sort of juggle all that in your head, you would starve to death or you would like fail to find your way back to the village, right? So we have a much greater capacity for remembering and reasoning about things in space than basically any software interface right now is really, you know, taking advantage of. Um, any, any, any sort of like mainstream popular software interface. And so for me, what something like Figma or Canva or all these other up the upcoming uh, Apple Freeform app, what that's doing is legitimizing this idea that uh, sp space is an important part of UIs. And I'll talk a little, I can talk about this a little bit more um, uh, later on as well is, and my contention is that uh, 
Canva does not go far enough, right? If you want to think what the ultimate interface for harnessing all of our superpowers um, of spatial perception, of spatial uh, memory, cognition, would be short of a brain-computer interface, like a shunt, mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it would have to be an embodied three-dimensional interface. So that's one. The second thing is, um, and this, this I think connects, John, to your point about um, efficacy or agency within a UI. Um, and I know this connects to things you're working on right now because I've seen some examples of this. The second trend that I'm seeing is people building software taking seriously the idea that certain kinds of knowledge and possibly all knowledge has this underlying associative network structure to it. And this is something that, you know, going back, hearkening back to the earliest days of the internet, um, people knew, like Ted Nelson knew that forever ago, right? And we also know this because the internet, every time you click on a link, that's how, that's what's going on. But the power of the UI is such that the, uh, the way that these links are represented to us in the user interfaces of a web browser completely obscures this, this underlying reality. And therefore people, you know, if, if even today, I mean, not even like today, I tell people, oh, I'm building a spatial knowledge graph. Um, and, and then they'll say, what's that? And I say, oh, well, you know, like all knowledge is all information is sort of like in the form of pieces with different relationships. And they're like, that's, wait, what? No. And they think it's like, no, all knowledge is an Excel table or all knowledge is like a giant Word document, right? Because those are things that, or maybe all knowledge is like a 10 point pitch. Familiarity that, is part because of that's, it, right? that's, that's, that's what they, they see, know, right? That's what they know. And so my contention there with um, a 3D interface is that um, we have forgotten that all knowledge, or we kind of like have this double thing where we, we, do, we don't do know that all knowledge is in the form of a graph. And we don't know at the same time because we don't have the interfaces that can actually show it to us in that way. And I say this, I, we almost don't have any. So there are, there are things like, um, so Rome has really popularized the idea that everyone can work very directly with a knowledge graph. And then there are, you know, plugins and, and, and sort of like clones of Rome that are then creating this graph view in, in, your, in your computer that shows this like pretty hard to use um, GUI of a, of, a, of a knowledge graph. Um, and I've seen versions of this for more specialized use cases. Like I think Palantir's product has some sort of like GUI like that. But my contention there is still that, you know, a computer, uh, even a huge monitor, uh, monitor display is just too small and flat to really let you work with a knowledge graph. And it may not even be the case that representing a full knowledge graph so literally is the best way to go. Um, but at least with my prototypes what I've been discovering is that when you can actually step into such a structure and look around and sort of like focus on one piece that you're working on and then just look up and see oh, what's around, uh, what's, what's over there, what's a bit further away. Um, and then to go see the other piece, you don't uh, destroy your view of your, the current thing you're looking at, you just move over. And therefore your mm -hmm. brain is building up the spatial relationship between the first thing and the second thing. Um, already goes a long way to making these structures, giving us great greater agency in working with these structures, as John would say. And then the third piece is just, you know, as you, uh, like collaboration. Social co-presence, uh, Meta has gone on a lot about this. Um, and I do believe that actually that is a major superpower of, uh, 
head-mounted 3D displays that you can represent other people remotely in a way that is just much more just like emotionally impactful um, than on video. Um, in scratching sort of Palantir, you raised a, another type of UI that people are quite familiar with and is completely quirky, which is murder boards. Basically, uh, if you watched Home, Homeland or uh, you know other sorts of things, when there's a crime and somebody starts pinning photos to the wall and then they're scribbling and then they take news clippings and they put them on and then they take yarn and pins and make connections between like people know what a murder board is. I'm, I'm not, I had, I just heard the term recently, but, but, but it's like, it's a map, you know, sometimes with, with more dimensions than just a bulletin board, but, but it's a, it's a map of what's happening. And then I'm, I'm reading right now a book about song lines that isn't Bruce Chatwin's book that kind of put song lines on the map, but it's, it's a called song lines, the power and promise by Margot Neil Garubara and Lynn Kelly. And it's a beautiful book. And I, I bring this up because song lines are many song lines are basically memorized oral culture only stories about the landscape and aboriginal australian culture is embedded in language and landscape and the song lines include a narrative of navigation of how to get from here to there the story of how the landscape was born that over there is a series of lizards like the seven lizards who did this who did that a series of easements and property rights that are baked into the song lines and who gets to do what where. A series of totems or taboos for the different tribes. Each tribe has a taboo animal of some sort that they don't hunt, they don't eat, but it's different from the next one. All these things are woven into song lines that are memorized and passed down for it could be 40,000 years. It could be 60,000 years. We're not really quite sure when this all started, but it's intricate and it's all about space. And when you and this happened for all indigenous tribes around the world, sorry, forget all, for many, so many indigenous ways of knowing were tied to the land that when they were torn from the land, their systems were shredded and really endangered. And part of what's happening now as we're starting to wake up and go, ooh, indigenous ways of knowing important, we should do something, it's like, guess what? We've pushed everybody off onto the worst bits of land in each of the countries that we, that we colonized. And so, and so maybe I'm thinking here, I, this, this thought hadn't come to me until this moment, maybe we're trying to decolonize idea space. And we're trying to create a space in which it's okay to hang things and have discussions in some sets of new spaces, whatever they are. And I'm really interested in what spaces we're talking about, because it doesn't all have to mirror actual geography and physical space. It doesn't have to do that at all. Right? There can be all sorts of abstract spaces. What do those spaces look like? And how do we deal with this in a way that gets us beyond the tractor beams of not just the desktop UI, but also sort of colonialism in some, in some weird way? How do we free ourselves to experiment in those spaces? Man, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I think that the, you, you mentioned abstraction and I, I, I've, as time goes on, I become more and more convinced that modern Western society, especially around technology, gets the balance and the apportionment of abstraction and literalism exactly wrong every time. Uh, the you know there's, there's a lot to be said about video games. Uh, we I, I think in our in our 
prep call, I, I mentioned that in my view, the, the best new UI work consistently for the last 30 years has happened there. It's just that it doesn't get credited because academics don't like to associate with video games and that sort of uh, fluffery. But in fact, it's really, really important. But the great, um, the, the great transmedia uh, granddaddy, Henry Jenkins, I think it was him, he who said, nothing has held back the advancement of video games more than the drive to photorealism. And, uh, you know, like if you, if you, if you just look, I, I love Ilya, that you were, you were kind of going to capital allocation and, you know, Marxism is just over the horizon there, but uh, like, where has the money gone? Well, a huge amount of money has gone into figuring out subsurface scattering so that the skin looks better and blah, 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 blah. But the content and the experience and the exhilaration does not lie there. And, you know, 98% of all video games are, are representational in a kind of art history sense. And a few of them are not. And the ones that aren't, I think, have a lot to teach us. Um, all the way back to Tempest, my favorite of the early, uh, you know, arcade video games, which is pure, like it's a narrative of pure geometry and peril and stuff, but it's pure geometry. Like, well, what is that? I, what am I? I don't know, but you know, uh, and and on and on like that. I think that the, um, maybe we should rummage around in space for a bit. I, and to start at, at the very beginning, the, the single best theory of the emergence of consciousness that I know of is um, by a great still, I think, living uh, neurophysiologist, called Rodolfo Yinas, who is retired, I think, but was at NYU. And he has a fantastic and, and super accessible book called Eye of the Vortex, that's I like the first person pronoun, um, in which he describes uh, consciousness as a mechanism that arose out of the need to move, period, right? Like if you're sessile, if you're a plant stuck in the ground, you don't need to plan because you kind of can't. And so you don't need consciousness. But as soon as you're one or a few cells going, you know, through an ocean, you need to know what to swim toward or away from or what to try to eat, you know, or sidle up to or, or whatever. And to do that, you need an internalized model of the external world. And in his view, that begets consciousness. If that's true, that means our brains and, you know, a lot about what we are and how we think and how we understand the world is about space. It's about the movement of bodies through space, causality that happens in space and time. So for every programming language in the world to ignore that, to ignore both space and time as basic constructs, for UI to effectively water down space until it's like the shabbiest possible interpretation of someone's awful desktop, and thank goodness you can't even see mine here, like for all of those things to be true, it's like, you know, missing the the gigantic pear that is so low hanging and so enormous that it's actually touching the ground and it's right there and almost no one's, you know, even nibbling at it, right? So I, I think space is the place. And- Space uh, is the place, there we go. We have a tagline for the call. <laughs> right, like, so- we, we can, you know, it, it's, we can literally imagine um, reifying the memory palace, which was kind of a metaphor or an analogy, but we can make the memory palace real. There's the, uh, the highly eccentric German art historian, 
Abby Warburg, whose final work in about 28 or 1929 was a thing called the Bilder Atlas, the picture atlas, which was incredibly personal and is a gorgeous work. It was about 60 panels, about six feet high, four feet wide, on which he had tacked murder, what is it, murder chart, murder? Murder boards? Murder board style, uh, basically reproductions of works of art and newspaper clippings and everything panel by panel, it was his representation of the world. So his view alone, but he thought it might have you know, use, utility and currency for other people. And the Warburg Foundation in London occasionally mounts exhibitions of this stuff. But in order to see it, you have to rent a warehouse and right. you know stage these things around. So he's literally situating ideas in space juxtaposing them, the relative positions of, of each board and each item on each board is not incidental, is in fact the substance and the meaning. The meaning comes from the connections and the associations. I love so, that. Blah. There's, blah. there's yeah. so, so many cool things here. Yeah. The meaning is between the pieces. I, 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 that absolutely resonates with me. I, one, one, one thing I would layer on there is, and that's a good jumping off point, um, the, the Abby Warburg uh, essentially sort of analog sort of soft space is unfortunately how I'm going to think about it. Um, and, and this reminds me a lot of, of a lot of the uh, walls and desks and working spaces at the, the artist studio where, where I was working before um, this. Um, one thing I would layer on that is that software does have all these advantages that um, add to these analog working methods, right? These analog working methods are actually super cumbersome and, and it's a testament to their value to us um, that we go through all the trouble of, a, of like clearing out this amount of like wall space or, or board space or whatever, and then printing out or however, you know, you have to manifest in physical media, these ideas and then pinning them up. And then if something changes late, later on, take, spending hours or days like rearranging things, um, and 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 a lot of these operations, I mean, all all these operations are are trivial and um, you know can't be too trivial. They can sort of like lose their meaning if if they're too automatic in the software environment. But you can save a lot of time. I think analogously to how um, the digital spreadsheets uh, grew out of the paper spreadsheet, um, but then because of the speed uh, with which you could run calculations and change things around, enabled a whole new way of using spreadsheets, which was this sort of like speculative fiction, uh, corporate finance thing, you know, where you could like do, do models and, and um, tell stories about what, what could be if, if X, Y, and Z. Um, and uh, I, I think another maybe more fundamental or deeper question um, that the murder board to software murder board raise it, that transition raises is what are the underlying uh, semantic primitives? Or if we're gonna talk about the meaning is in the space, okay, great. I mean, you know, Abby Warburg was an artist. I think artists um, have a lot to teach us about things that we just are, they're just beyond our current capacity to articulate, right? That's like almost like kind of the artist's job to, to point like, there's something there in that in that general direction. I don't I don't know what to call it. We we don't we don't have to think about it yet. But like go look there. Um, and I think this is maybe a similar area where we don't. I mean, I have some ideas, you know, that that are working hypotheses that I have to incorporate into the software I'm building. 
but I don't think we really know yet what the primitives are of spatial semantics, are of like associative knowledge graphs. Um, the and because we don't know, and a lot of these applications, what happens is you just have this sort of undifferentiated reference, right? It's like, oh, this link points to that thing. And then you build it all up and it's like, oh, just like a giant spider web of, of things that point to each other. Um, within really specific domains, of course, you can have like a controlled vocabulary of these are the three ways that things can be can relate to each other. Um, you know, if you're like, if it's literally a detective's office with a murder board, it might be like, these people know those people, those people spoke to those people, et cetera. But in a more general sense, I don't think we, we the thing is, we, there may not be, right? There may not actually be a, like a general purpose knowledge graph, uh, relational semantics or whatever. But um, we know so little about how, how these things even work. Um, and it's only through the process of trying to build software that reflects that Abby Warburg style murder board I, I, this term i'm not sure about it but okay um yeah, because to build a software you have to you have to define it explicitly like what is that connection and therefore now now we have to think about it yeah well surely the the surely the best way to figure that out is to try as many experiments as possible which is a little bit anathema to the current kind of startup feel right and kind of academia has been hollowed out by the the pull of the bay area and by the nonsense of people like peter Thiel saying no the the less you know like the sooner you get started as a strapping young capitalist the better for everyone right but at seven start at seven no 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 five in utero that's when real creativity begins uh, like but so th there's something structural here as well, I think that um, that that could use a little work. You know, where I th that's not how all of this started. Weirdly, right? I mean, it, it sort of. Well, no, it, it didn't, right? You you've got yeah. you've got Engelbart, like in he's like a one human Cambrian explosion, blah, right? And everyone's like, oh, thank you very much. We'll take the mouse. And he's like, no, no, but, uh, you know, oh, no, just sit in the corner, Doug. You're, you've done well. Thank you very much. Right. So there's that. And there's Xerox Park. Yeah. No labs. But it's just yep. a few people in in each case. So I give, a, I give a speech to the senior leadership of Xerox when Paul Allaire was CEO, invited in by their CIO uh, when I was writing for Esther. Uh, and I basically said to them, hey, you guys, you who have invented half of the tinker toys that are on the table right now, there is an opportunity for you to dive deep and sort of fix how we communicate through ideas, through documents and all that. And then uh, shortly after that, not because of me at all, they renamed themselves the document company and went right back to business as usual. But the first sign I had of trouble in that meeting was the guy who introduced me put up a foam core board that was like six feet wide and a foot big, a foot tall, and had on it their strategic planning process, which was a timeline lasting two years. And it showed like a little flow diagram of it. And there was a little arrow in a piece of it that said, we are here. And I was like, OMG. The web has just broken into the world. Things, all bets are off. If you sit here and hang on to your two-year strategic planning cycle, you are dead people. Like, and I felt like my talk went into an anechoic chamber. Like, like I, I could hear my ideas just sort of be absorbed into the sound deadening, the soundproofing material in the walls and not make it into anybody's heads. It was crazy. And so, so 
there's this real danger that we we wind up losing so much of what's just on the table right in front of us, as we started saying. And um, Yilu, to go back to what you were saying a bit, there are a lot of philosophers and deep thinkers who've done some really good work on this. A simple one is Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics, has the great, the big, the big pyramid, um, which, um, and I'll do a really quick uh, screen share because I pulled it up, uh, looks like this, and basically says, hey, weirdly, sometimes the more abstract the comics character, like in Ten Ten, which is one of my favorite cartoons in the world, the scenes are lifelike, but Ten Ten's face is always this oval with just a couple dots for eyes. And you're like, wait, what? A, how does that work as art? How does it work that I'm always seeing Ten Ten, but not worried about his expressions? And B, uh, part of what McLeod is saying is that the more abstract the character, the easier it is for us to slip inside them and to and to sort of adopt what their point of view or see what they're thinking or whatever. And there's this problem with the boundary with, with realism, that, John, that you put in the conversation earlier. So there's partly that. But then also, it seems like we're not going to end up with one winner for what the right philosopher is and what the right abstraction is and what the right set of protocols and primitives are. But I think we're going to end up having a series of protocols and APIs or agreements or something that allow us to, to honor different perspectives and ways of seeing, but then have this conversation in the middle. And I'm really interested in what that middle is, because if we're going to have group tools for thinking, multiplayer tools for thought, then we need to have an arena where we're thinking together and playing together. And in a fit of peak a little while ago, I, I bought the domain thebigfungus.org to give it some kind of playful name, because I feel like a lone ant feeding the fungus that feeds the hive uh, when I add things to the brain that, I, that I'm constantly curating. And I'm looking around going, this is really fun. Where is everybody? And a piece of what, what the challenge here is, is describing where the space is. Like, like, where are we putting this stuff? If you mm -hmm. ask me where Wikipedia is, I can tell you where the servers run, how they're funded, what software they're running, where the data is, which is all open source, et cetera, et cetera. Wikipedia, because it's an encyclopedia and it's using a conventional model and it's insanely popular, is really easy to explain. You bump up a level of abstraction from there, and it's suddenly we're lost, we're unmoored, we're unanchored. And one of the things we need in this space is, I'm going to borrow here from yoga, the sense of a drishti. And when you're, when you're, stand, when you're doing a one-legged asana, and you're trying to balance, and you're like, ah, you pick a point someplace, and that's your drishti, that's your anchor point for the pose. And it helps you completely settle down and hold, hold a difficult pose we don't really have drishtis in these new cyberspaces or metaverses or whatever, or we're not paying enough attention to that somehow. I don't know, but, but we need to, to ponder some of these things and then drop them down into the arcane world of concrete code. Right. I, I really like that. Um, I, I will, I will meditate on that uh, analogy. So um, I'm not sure if this is, too concrete a um an interpretation of of what you were just describing jerry but your question does bring to my mind a lot of interesting projects some of which i believe will be um joining us at betaworks um that are trying to that are that are already are proposing an alternate answer to where is that digital thing i'm looking at um beyond the sort of like 
centralized, uh, corporation-owned, not your data model that, for better or for worse, is the only model up until this point that has at scale provided the sense of oh, I know at least I know where that is. I know what I also know like that will that could disappear if the company goes bankrupt or whatever. But at least I know for now where it is. Um, and you know, uh, I don't know if it's obvious, but a lot of these models do rely on um, Web three or a decentralized. Um, technical infrastructure and value, like economic incentive structure to keep these things alive and around in some immutable address and location. Things, things and like the, I, and as, IPFS, the interplanetary file exactly. system, DAOs, yes. yeah. NFTs, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Keep going. I sorry. think specifically IPFS is, is, is at least being explored very um, actively as a possible model for um, a way for me to put something on you know into this virtual sphere into this higher plane where everyone everyone else can also access it can can um then uh incorporate some uh version of it or not even a version of it, it can incorporate a view of it in their own tool that uh, of their choosing that either they built or you know that they um decide they want to use um and as a builder of of uh maybe something more like the middle the coming together the space where um, this information is then made accessible to a group of people. I'm very, very excited about all this activity um, in this direction because otherwise my only alternative is, you know, using Firebase or using AWS or using one of these um, more standard models. And then also, you know, at least offering uh, a local first storage model so the user uh, can always like, Back have out. access to yeah have have access to a copy of their data if the server shuts down or they close their account or whatever right right love that so it feels like through all of this there's a there's a job there's a job description that isn't currently uh, advertised or filled for that matter like there there's some superb meta work to be done here I mean that with a lowercase m in the original sense the yeah not copyrighted sense of that yeah. Uh, a meta meta classic. I think we need to re, we need to have a, a backronym or something like that now. Uh, yeah. I hate that. The appropriation of important words. Anyway, um, which is and and who knows where this takes place. And again, that probably gets to the sort of structural questions about: Is it the job of governments? Is it the job of academia? Is it the job of consortia? Is it the job of citizen scientists? Who knows? But the the meta work that I have in mind is to say like. Okay, the best new experiments right now are soft space and blah, and this thing over here and this really interesting project out of uh, Slovenia and right like and so what what is the what's the what is a conceivable lingua franca connecting all of those like what's the interoperability layer both technically and cognitively that would make it so that you know Jerry inside the brain can meaningfully have a conversation with you inside a soft space construct, right? So that the stuff can flow back and forth, but so that you can also sort of see it in your own preferred relative context, but with, you know, like with that sort of, well, this is in this block, but I can see clearly down Broadway in the next block is some brain-like stuff, right? And I can see how it connects. And, you know, that, that's there's a philosophical element to that. There's a the kind of standards protocol level element to that and, yeah. and there's a lot of I, 
kind of architectural and design stuff. Yeah. I'm totally on board with the vision you just painted and struggling with it because for me, in my imagination, it means that when I reach a particular edge or boundary in the space that I'm exploring, and it's clear that on the other side of that boundary, a different kind of tool is necessary. How do I make an elegant transition into that other tool? And then some of these things are power tools. How do I get good at that tool? Or how do I get good enough at that tool where it actually works, right? It's the difference between McDraw and Illustrator or Photoshop. I just never learned Illustrator or Photoshop because I took one look at them and said, this is arcane and terror. And like, it's great if you're a graphic artist and it's a money, money mint, you know, it's a, it's a money-making machine for, for Adobe, but I'm not going to learn it. But I used to draw all my own things in McDraw. And at this point, I'm looking hard. I'm using Excaladraw, which is like this little piece of open source code uh, that works with Obsidian that I can use with Markdown files in really intriguing ways to try to emulate what I used to be able to do in 1990 by myself, right? And so, so we're kind of lost in the middle there. And then I love that there's a jobs, there's a framework called jobs to be done, yeah. um, which is really interesting. It's like you hire a milkshake to keep you satisfied for the morning because you're in your pickup going from job site to job site, right? Your things and, and jobs to be done is often, often leads to unusual insights because, you know, you hire a politician to get something done you need in your life. Uh, and it, it gives you a very different perspective. And I think you're right. There's, there's a, a job here to figure out. And, and unfortunately, it's not a job that Silicon Valley is going to reward very well because it's not a job for locking down IP and milking it for all it's worth. Yeah. It's a job for building some set of commons conversations and commons protocols and agreements and norms and practices. Then it's a job for going out and talking to the bonfires on the horizon that represent the different communities working on interesting but different and siloed parts of this problem and encouraging to come play in the general purpose arena because it's going to be better for all of us if we do. And, and I, that's hard. I think, I think there's a, to the very beginning, to back to the beginning of that paragraph, uh, your paragraph just now, Jerry, I think Part of the answer is pseudopods, pseudopods, baby. Pseudopods, I like that. Or, sli get, or slime molds. Yes, well, they should look just like that. Like if you get to the edge of your domain or demean, you should be able to like grab like just a chunk of the soft space stuff next door, pull it into your domain. I actually think that there is a, a kind of software meta protocol and interop protocol by which systems could advertise to each other their their capabilities and their sort of basic sounds fantastic mm -hmm. right and so like pull a little soft space pseudopod in volitionally right it's not coming at you but you pull it in and you can play with it like i don't have to learn the whole thing but like wow i see i see so i can make this uh, spiky thing here. actually actually can i show you something? actually please do please do and while you're looking for the thing to, to screen share we haven't talked really about machine learning at all yet here, and clearly it plays it plays it can play a huge role. And one of the questions I'm interested in, which I'm going to ask in a in a future podcast episode here, is hey, what are the many different ways in which machine learning can help tools for thinking, in particular collective or group, you know, multiplayer tools for thinking? But one of the interesting uh, things that I don't think is on anybody's radar is what you just said, John, which is there could be a a, a companion app that says, oh, hey, Jerry you're walking into a, a setting, a situation, a question, a part of your uh, inquiry 
where you might want to run a simulation or you might want to do systems analysis using Kumu or a Kumu-like tool. or mm-hmm. And it would know that you're passing a, a boundary into a new domain and it would then know to coach you or help you or find an expert in that domain right. and make those boundaries actually very fruitful. Because otherwise, most of us, aren't trained in the variety of domains that exist. And we don't know that we've hit a boundary where there's something that could help us solve this problem better. We just don't even know to ask the question, yep. right? So, so a system that, that can have some of that awareness and coach us through could really give us a step function up. And one of my theories of progress, and this has really played out a lot in software, is that it's a step function. Yep. It's a step function. Every now and then somebody invents a breakthrough Breakthrough changes everything. And then and then suddenly we're at the end of its S curve and everybody's like, gosh, this feels really old, but I have no idea what's next. And then boom, somebody invents something new. And now nobody can, can, can imagine the world before the iPhone, which launched in 2007, right? It, it's like really hard for us to imagine a pre-smartphone world. And yet somehow people used to meet. We used to like navigate in cars. We like do all these things pre-smartphone. But but so so I think we're we're sitting right in front and we're talking about here the next step function of what this is. And and it's exciting to be having this conversation. It is for sure. Um, I can share my screen if please go for it. And I, I'm sorry that was a much longer uh, digression than I than I thought I was going to. No, in. that was so right. Please, I, I, please share screen. Great. I'm I'm we're we're eager for the step function, and maybe it can be an even bigger step than than in recent times. So what you'll see in a second is uh, purely a prototype, kind of uh, an illustration of some of the things that I just said. But the idea was that um, if you have uh, if you have the idea of kind of uh, code permeability so that running systems can kind of jump through the air and land on larger display surfaces, again, always with an eye to collaboration, uh, then you can enable a new kind of collaboration where people with individual systems on their individual devices can, can physically and therefore literally come together in a shared display and interaction space and if at the same time the the systems that they're running have this capability of advertising their own structures and and their own capabilities then maybe some kind of automated minimal interop is possible even when systems haven't been designed to work together so let us see then um, what we can see uh, better turn the audio down Right, so this is um, a thing called frog, and you see that as each of these three researchers approaches the giant display, um, the the program that's running on, unfortunately in this case, his uh, laptop jumps across and begins executing on the big board, and the tendrils there are are meant to indicate that there is, you know, this sort of transaction of meaning between these systems and your stuff follows you around so there's a kind of big spatial obligation that's fulfilled here um and th- there was a whole kind of big you know urban planning and emergency first responder backstory to this to this scenario um and again you know this is elusive meant to be elusive and and nothing else um but again highlighting the idea that uh that ad hoc collaboration is easy for people and with the right instrumentation uh, of of running 
executable code, it ought to be minimally possible for digital systems as well. It's just that no one's ever built one of these, but I think it's accessible right now. It's really interesting. Uh, the Sugar OS that was on the OLPC did a little tiny bit of, not, not the standing in front of a display and sharing stuff, but you could intersect and interact with people in the OS in ways that were pretty clever. And yeah. then Jupyter, Jupyter Notebooks, which is like mm -hmm. a lab notebook thing that has a Python runtime basically under the hood, you could imagine that our browser becomes more like Jupyter Lab Notebooks and, and then that the code simply lets uh, a simulation or something move from screen to screen and be shared more effectively. And those are like really simple, primitive examples of what you just showed. But it's, it, this, this is a juicy, uh, juicy world I'd like to live in. Yeah. Yes. Yes, please. I mean, Ilya, uh, do you think that soft space could become also a meta environment? Could, one of the things that I've, um, one of the many things I admire about your work and the way you work is the kind of dedication to rapid, rapid prototyping, which is really unusual in the startup world where you're like, oh, go and you get entrenched and you build hard and, you know, and then it's just sort of shellac layer after shellac layer, but your willingness to kind of build and toss part of it aside and build a new thing feels like that it, if you, in the best possible way, institutionalized that practice, you could give you could give coders and experimenters a bunch of bricks mm -hmm. so that they could do their own little evolutionary explosion and try out all of the experiments that I think are gonna be necessary to define the primitives, uh, as you said, and the language and the vocabulary and the grammar and the syntax and the rest of it, um, which, which is not something that any one person, no matter how talented can do, or any one company for that matter, because companies are a really bad structure for that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, to, you know, to be fair, the prototyping phase that um, we're in the middle of right now, um, because of the, the limitations you, you just pointed to, it, it's necessarily uh, a bounded period. So it started earlier this year. It came out of my frustration with um, how much experimentation and how quickly I could experiment. Um, uh, I basically how experimental I could be using a more standard software development product development playbook for the preceding you know number of years, um, and it probably has to come to a close toward the end of this year uh, you know and and something that I'm I'm very curious to hear your thoughts probably after this podcast episode um, this podcast recording on would be how to maintain um, some amount of this sort of like destabilizing, open-minded, open-ended play, um, while also, you know, serving paying customers and solving real problems and having people who are using your thing, uh, hopefully to, to um, uh, do solve real world problems, but therefore mm -hmm. are also reliant on a dependable, you know, sort of concept uh, architecture and, and all that. Um, the question about whether uh, you know, or who is building an interop layer for, yeah. for, for all these um, uh, spatial software experiments. You know, I think ultimately that does, that does have to come from uh, the organizations that have the resources and have the, the power uh, here, which are the, you know, as of today, the hardware manufacturers. So they would have to be the ones to say, 
we're going to build the OS layer such that it has all of these um, capabilities that we're that we're hope you know that we're dreaming of in uh, in this conversation. Um, one interesting uh, heuristic, design heuristic that that this reminds me of when I spoke to someone uh, many years ago who who was an interaction designer at uh, then Oculus. Um, one thing they told me was uh, a rule of thumb they, that the organization had for when it came to how hard to try to, um, or how much effort to put into making uh, virtual behaviors uh, visible or synchronized across multi multiple users was um based on our expectations from the real world so my expectation if i am sitting with you at a at a table and i pick up a piece of paper and I, and I you know move it like this my expectation is that you would see that um that that transform transformation um but then from your point of view right it would be very strange if i were, would be able to scrawl a, um, a sketch on this piece of paper and you couldn't see it even if I was holding it right in front of you. And so that places quite a high sort of threshold or quite a high standard on these um, immersive spatial interfaces uh, to make everything, to, to make everything meaningful, sensible across different software, right? Across different, uh, um, uh, paradigms even and so has, i think it has to map somehow yeah it has to map somehow it has to map somehow or it doesn't map at all but then you risk like me doing something which i think is important and meaningful and you can't even your your version of the app doesn't even let you see what i'm doing right which is someplace and, which some points is going to just going to happen it's going to break because other software doesn't do the magic thing that your software does or and vice versa but um, isn't, isn't a first cut at that again to be completely literal that is yes, to say that, you know, you're you're doing your thing, and your you know your your floating orb of activity kind of bumps into Jerry's. Like the the minimal thing is just to literally see what he sees, maybe backwards. I don't know, but you know, like and, and that can be done at the pixel level. It doesn't even have to doesn't require at that at that stage software interop. Mm -hmm. So, so you're right, John. That um, the th then the lowest the lowest common denominator becomes uh, what you would expect a physical version of this thing to yeah. to how it would behave. Um, I've I'm already running into design decisions where I have to make a decision, a trade off between what is. Um, I'll give you a really really concrete example. Say the three of us were standing in a um, soft space prototype, and we had a few images floating around us. And in the current version of the prototype, the images automatically rotate to to present their, yeah. you know, themselves to you uh, head on. And that's very helpful because then you don't even think about whether I have to move to a certain place to see what the image is. Everything yeah. is sort of just displaying itself to you. What do you do when there are two people in the space or five? 500 people in the space, right? So the default would be that, okay, things have a canonical rotation, um, which means it's suboptimal for the individual viewers. But then if I pick it up and move it, everyone, and I, I think I am moving it uh, or turning it like this, 
everyone else sees it being turned that way and therefore we can communicate via its sort of one standard spatial semantic rotation right spatially meaningful uh, rotation but then you 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 trade off against um some of the uh power of of, of a software environment which you know could show you things um it could adapt itself to make it more visible to you um and the dilemma so, you're painting is, is almost funny because um, anybody who's used Google Docs to collaborate online with somebody knows that staring at the same document and being able to edit it with other people is really, really powerful, right? And it's it's sort of more powerful than five people standing around a screen trying to collaboratively edit a document and talking to the scribe or whatever else. So in some weird way, when we're reinstantiating physical space with an audience or a group trying to collaborate online, we've like thrown ourselves back into the stupid problem of, hey, who's the screen facing and how does that actually work in the space, which you've and you've described one fix for that, which is nice because because really I I love Google Docs for collaborating on writing stuff. It works really pretty clearly. And there's a bunch of other tools now that know how to do that, right? I, I think there there are simple at the first layer at the first level there are there's a set of small a small number small integer number of simple heuristics and approaches that can address the problems that you've raised you and i think i think all that stuff i actually have another video that i could show that <laughs> that that comes at some of it but uh, let's not waste time with that like there's i think a little tiny bit of additional uh, vocabulary, like basically diacritical marks that let you know whether a particular element is being universally seen, like this thing no. is, you know, you're seeing it backwards because you're on the other side, right? And so it doesn't have the diacritical mark. And then a, a version of it, which you can toggle where uh, now everyone can see that you're seeing this piece of the environment, the landscape, the, the topology, the topography, in a way that privileges you. So just the, like, there's unbelievable power, as we've all been saying, in the simple idea of co-seeing. If we stand in a physical space, we look in the same direction. I don't have to wonder if you're all seeing the rabid ocelot that's coming toward us, right? Like, we all know that. And that's, that is an incredible cognitive capability. In all of this junk, it's, it's a giant bunch of murk. Like, this junk right here that we're using right now, if there were six or 16 of us, let's do Hollywood Squares or Brady Bunch or whatever, it would be the simplest thing in the world for this software to assure that the layout is the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. They haven't figured out that little trick, which means that even simple things like eye lines are always messed up, right? You can play the game where if you've got nine people on, you say, everyone point to Jerry and everyone's pointing in some other direction. Like, right. so that's, that's ground zero. Then ground one, I think with a little bit of visual and, and geometric annotation, you can make clear which elements are being universally seen and identically yeah. seen, even if in weird orientations and which are being seen in some way that privileges a particular viewer or every viewer or which things are redacted because you're not allowed, you know, I don't want you to see my email, even though I'm, you know, I've exploded my 2D screen and you're seeing all the elements yeah, shifted around. Exactly. So I, I think it, it, it's just, it's just, I feel like the word is permission, right? Like you just mm. need to 
take for yourself because nobody going to give it to you. Take the permission to just invent all that stuff. I, I'm, yeah. I'm speaking to all of us, not, you know, like I think yeah, there, we're, we're, there's that kind of like we're, we're under this very low ceiling of, of implied non-permission and we've all been crouched down so long that, you know, like it hurts and you straightening up is going to, is going to take a little doing, but we're all, we're all on floor nine and a half and being John Malkovich, it's like, <laughs> you have to, you have to kind of crouch and walking around you're seeing through John Malkovich's eyes, which is really disconcerting, but, but that's a form of co-seeing in some weird and twisted way. Um, yeah. We've, we've um, almost eaten all of our time. We were close to 90 minutes and I'm wondering what, um, what questions are lingering in your head? And if you had a research agenda or a startup agenda, what would you propose? Just a, some kind of a greenfield question uh, to take us out of the call. Uh, it can be either way. Like, like what questions has this raised for you that would you like to see answered? Or uh, if you could set up an agenda for what to build, what to do, what would that look like? Uh, so John, the last thing that you said about taking... Uh, about permission? taking action, let's say, <laughs> um, and not needing permission. I think, um, I think the question I would leave this call with is how do you tr invent truly new things, truly new and good things, not just novelty for novelty's sake, but truly new and good things in the face of myself included, people being quite lazy and unwilling and unable to invest the necessary time and effort and energy often to to learn those new things because i think john what you were you were describing there about like you know why do we feel so hemmed in by these like um these these ghosts that there's no one stopping me from from just doing it i think the thing that's maybe stopping me for example is this wisdom this wisdom that has been that has accumulated that people um will like, unless you make it super, super easy for people to, to adopt, it's not going to work, you know? And, and so my, the question would be, how do you actually um, work from first principles and develop things that push the envelope when humans are often the hardest part of the envelope to push? Humans hard to push. <laughs> I, okay, uh, so I will dock my comments with with that stuff in you. First off, I don't think you're particularly lazy. In fact, I think you're doing some of the best work in the world in but he's trying to he's trying to build for lazy for other lazy humans. Yeah. I, you know, when I when I when I open yeah. my, you know, sort of like uh, I don't know, banking app, I'm also not excited to spend 30 minutes learning some novel UI for managing money, right? It's like <laughs> right. I kind of wanted to just show me a bank account and hopefully it's like a large number. If you so. had to do like a Pokemon Go in order to get interest collected on your account, that would be an, an unhappy moment. So just admitting that I am lazy when it comes to other people's um, innovations. Yeah. Well, maybe if they sucked less, you'd be more inclined to, to deal with that. And to that point, you know, one answer, and it's only a tiny bit facetious, is to maybe put a bunch of new ideas inside video games, right? Like the, that's sort of the last Starfighter idea, right? Like train people to to use the digital world in a new way, um, not to fight battles like in that movie, uh, but to do, you know, to do mutually beneficial things. I, I think, so my, my outro here is to say, 
is to wonder what the new human organizational structures, which is a big theme for me these days, are going to be, need to be, but then can be implemented. Like what, what are the new accessible human organizational structures that will let what you asked about you happen, right? Um, Bell Labs and Xerox Park are gone and the behemoths that should be making the new ones of those, and we all know them, uh, aren't, right? Like the whatever the political, financial, uh, whatever, even kind of philosophical structure no longer exists. So that's mm -hmm. how governments, I think, have a really important role to play, but it's not, it's not at the, the kind of sitting in the lab working on stuff level. It's more at the kind of, you know, high level structural approach and funding and, you know, DARPA-ish maybe. So what is, what is that thing? Because I want to do my work cheek by jowl with your work, even if you're a startup and I'm an individual or I'm, I work for a hospital, but I have this, you know, like hobby building this stuff or whatever it is, right? Like, how do we get together? Here's the big word, community or, around these ideas. Because unless, you know, unless we can pull out the control rods, keep the density really tight, like get these ideas together and not working in isolation, then I think the best we get are sort of physical blips where the, the extant mega structures, like, acquire little ideas and extinguish them or absorb them in some useless way into something else. Amazing how so, quickly things are extinguished. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Let's, let's build that, that new mega structure. I have, you know, I'm a little bit obsessed with Black Mountain College. Oh, I think there's, there's one of those, there are several of those to be built, but there's probably a really good one to be built with, with these ideas as one of its, Kind of core tenets. So I was just learning about the Nordic folk schools. Do you know about them? Yeah. Um, yeah. They're quite amazing. Like 10% of the population of most of the Nordic countries went through a folk school, which was kind of like a citizenship school. And one of the reasons we think that, that the Nordics have like some different sense of quality of life and policy and all those kinds of things is, is this thing. Uh, which was invented back around 1870, 1850, somewhere around there, and then grew and then shrank and is still alive a little bit, but really isn't, isn't dominant in any way. But it's, it's also in that same realm of Black Mountain College. These are, these are spaces within which people were able to really be generative. And um, they were also really playful spaces. It's a little bit, uh, this is maybe a bad analogy, but Bell Labs during its golden age, <clears throat> which was full of scientists and geeks inventing things like the transistor, but was playful also in, in, in the sense of highly capable people who would just sort of meet and mingle and have lunch and suddenly run off and, and, and invent something new. And we don't have that. John, as you just said, basic research has been gutted. Uh, corporations uh, are, are like have thrown most of that investment overboard. Colleges and universities are teaching for basically the becoming trade schools. Trade schools Every, yeah. Everybody's focused on STEM and what will get me a job. And the humanities are being deprecated. Uh, we're, we're sort of losing people who care a lot about art and technology, even as I can point to hundreds of art and technology movements struggling to stay alive around the globe. 
but they're really struggling to stay alive in many ways, right? And then where they succeed, they get co-opted by the industry of art. And suddenly, and suddenly there's too much money involved and it's like all screwed up and it's not the thing you actually want to happen either. So what about that? You know, that, that's another black hole that's absorbing energy and, and, and innovation. So somehow in the middle of all this, we need to stake out, curate, or, or somehow stake um, a vibration and energy and attractor that brings people in without co-opting them, without destroying their models or their goals or their incentives, but enhances the collaborations mm -hmm. of the groups. And yes. as a result, leads us back toward reinventing the things we've been talking about on this call, if that makes sense. You're here. Okay, so let's just build one. All right. I'm ready. I'm in. I'm in. It All might right. be a physical location as well, at least for time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it's it would help to have a drishti or a or a, a platform or a grounding point somewhere in our real world in meat space, good old fashioned meat space, uh, which we have to backronym as well. We have to say, you know, what, oh, you mean real life, right? Yeah, yeah, real life. <laughs> Funny, we have to we have to coke classic everything. I think it. I think at this point we're just going to call a halt because we, I could do this all day with you all. This is just uh, phenomenal. I really. I really love this call and uh, want to do this again. So I will head toward our, our exits and then we can figure out what's next. Thank you all for listening to Tools for Thinking, a new podcast that just might help you with your thinking. If you're part of a startup in this sector, please knock on our door at betaworks.com slash camp. Otherwise, keep listening to these podcasts and join me in thanking uh, John and Yiliu for a fabulous conversation. Really appreciate it.